You know, uh, I came uh, yesterday morning. I woke up or Friday morning. I woke up with kind of a, you know a head cold starting, and and uh, then yesterday it got a little worse. This morning it was kind of you know yucky. But what I do like about head colds is the medications make me love people. And I love you so much this morning. It's not often the pastor that actually cares. And I have this caring heart. I'm open. And I just love all of you. Praise the Lord. So Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be talking about this notion of God trying to engage with our lives. And it's challenging because sometimes it just doesn't seem like he's there. But yet these texts that we run into in scripture repeatedly make these claims that the heart of God is in pursuit of the human life. It was Luther that called God the holy hound of heaven. And what he meant by that was once he got your scent, he chased you. And there's nothing you can do to get away from him. The psalmist said it so beautifully. He said, if, if I run to the remotest part of the sea, even there, running from you, even there, you, you'll be there to, to hold me. And he said, if I think that, that I've so created a dark world, I've made so many horrible choices, that the light around me is darkness. He said, even there, your hand will take hold of me. So God is in pursuit of us. And we pick up this text in the book of Revelations. This is, uh, by tradition, has been written by John. And John is Jesus' friend. You remember that uh, John the Apostle is called the, uh, the one whom Jesus loved. They had a, an unusual kind of connection. One of the closest disciples, he and Peter, <coughs> were very, very close to him. And the scripture says in Revelations 3, this is after Jesus had raised from the dead, after the passion, he's gone to heaven, he's ascended. And now he's visiting John in this vision. And he says this to John, communicating to the church, which we still are, which means this text is for us. And he says to John, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. One uh, Greek scholar said the tension of this doesn't caught in the English. It's as if God is pounding, trying to get our attention. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice, which implies you've got to be listening for it, and opens the door, which implies some kind of action on our part, before God takes another action. I will come in. It's this notion he talks about eating and being with us. It's this idea that God loves to be with his people. That on some level he wants to participate with us in life, which presumably would mean life would be sweeter. When you're talking about the author of life, the one who said, I have life and that more abundantly, if he comes into your context, presumably that would make it better. <laughs> that if the God of, of hope would come into our lives, that, that our lives would be more brimming with hope. Hope is that idea. That something good is going to happen. Oh, Roberts used to say, something good is going to happen to you. What is that? That's a statement of hope. Instead of dread, which means get ready because the suck is going to slap upside your head. Right? Most of us live in the land of the suck. We just expect the suck. 
instead of understanding. No, no, we're called, at least according to texts like this, to something better, to have a different kind of expectation. And what we have to ask ourselves is, what if this is true? I mean, wouldn't it be sad to have Jesus when we, when we actually die or when we actually, when actually returns, that somehow we see God shows us history and shows us how many times he was pounding at our door. But we thought, oh, well, we're, I didn't think you really were after me. I mean, I'm not anybody. I'm not, I'm not you know, a Mother Teresa. I'm not a Billy Graham. I mean, I'm just a Starbucks barista. I'm just a student. I'm just a mom of some jelly-faced toddlers. I'm, I'm just a butcher, baker, candlestick maker. I mean, why would God be interested in me? And yet, what if, irrespective of position, irrespective of race, irrespective of, of whether you're male or female, irrespective of anything about you, that God is pressing and longing to be involved with our lives. And what if we're living far below what God imagined for us to live. How sad would that be? What if if there's more for you and me? What what if there's a whole dimension brimming with hope around us, brimming with life around us? I mean, this this is the challenge of the text. I mean, it's explicitly stated. In texts like Ephesians 1, Paul makes this statement. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I haven't stopped giving thanks for you, and I'm remembering you in my prayers. And then we actually get what he's praying, a record of it. He said, I keep coming to heaven. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give to you a spirit of wisdom, which means you could know and understand some things that you maybe don't understand now. And not only that, a spirit of revelation, which means God revealing to you things that you cannot pick up by just looking around your world. You can't tell what God is doing just by looking at your circumstances. You can't tell what God is up to by looking and examining your feelings. There's something more going on that transcends your feelings and your con- the contingencies of your life. That he's there. And so Paul's saying, I pray that, that somehow that, that God will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That you'll know him better. That the eyes of your heart, not just the eyes of your head. But the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So that you will know the hope to which he has called you. That there's good for you. And not only that, the riches of this glorious inheritance in the saints. There's stuff for you, riches for you, that if you're not careful, you'll live as though they weren't there. And his incomparably great power for people who believe. In other words, somehow, if if we could catch it, that there's this knocking. And that we would dare hear it and then reach somehow and open the door. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that constitutes. And if we would open the door, that we would be flooded with hope. There's something good. We'll have this. There's something good's going to happen. Why? Because I've got this inheritance. God has thought through what I need in life. And there's an inheritance. And not only that, there's this incomparably great power for us who believe. <laughs> Paul speaks of this power again in chapter 3. And he says, now to God who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, one version says, or think 
God can do more than you can ask. God is willing to do more than you can imagine or think. To him be glory. According to the power, according to the power that's at work where? Within us. In other words, if you're not getting even what you're asking, if you're not getting even what you're thinking, maybe it's because we haven't learned how to open the door so there's more power in us. What if there's more than what we're tasting? What if God has more for us? There's an Old Testament prophet that looked at one of the kings and he said, the Lord has much more for you than this. What if that's true? And then he goes on. He says, to him be glory in the church, in the church. See, God isn't just interested in doing stuff out here that we observe. He's interested in doing stuff through the church. Which means the church must learn to participate. And if he's not doing more things, maybe it's because we're totally distracted and not participating. Maybe we're not listening for his voice or opening the door. Maybe our, maybe the problem is us. Glory in the church in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. He's talking about being surprised by God. <laughs> I think... Some of us are much more disappointed than we are surprised. God isn't even doing what we're asking, much less more than we can imagine. And, and I, I, you know, I have some, some friends who, uh, who live out in the country and live quite a distance from the road, right? Out in the country. We lived in Wisconsin, rural America. I mean, some people have half a mile. I know of a guy that had a road, a dirt road, a mile off the state highway. A mile. That means he wasn't surprised very often. I mean, the occasional Avon lady would have been shocked. Would have been a shock, right? There's, you just don't get surprised when you live off the beaten trail like that. Now, imagine that between that and like walking down the street in uh, Times Square in New York City. Man, you don't have to do that very long. You'll be surprised all day. I mean, just looking at people. There's some weird people out there. And you're just, whoa. We were out there last time, I think about a year ago, walking down the street, and I look up, and here's Snoop Dogg, you know, that rapper. <laughs> Snoop Dogg? You know, totally surprised. But that's what happens. You get surprised when you're where the action is. Stuff's constantly going on. See, what I'm suggesting to you is, is that some of us live so far off the beaten trail of God's kingdom. That God seems distant and we seldom are surprised by his love and we're seldom surprised by his power and we seldom experience good. We're just too far off the beaten trail. In Mark chapter 1, this is, uh, it says that after John was put in prison that Jesus went into Galilee and he's proclaiming the good news about God. The good news, what is the good news about God? It's this, the time has come. And it was right now. He said, the kingdom of God is near. The influence of God is near. And one version says, it's at hand. The kingdom of God, the influence of God is at hand, which means it's within your grasp. This isn't something ungraspable. This isn't something beyond you. That's why Jesus told us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven. Actually, the literal translation is who art in the heavens. It's this notion that God is everywhere present. He's here. Our God who is in the heavens, who is everywhere present. Hallowed be thy name, which is this choice within to say you are worth. Hallowed be thy name literally implies you're worth dying for. 
you are worth my death. And it came to mean not only red martyrdom, which means the shedding of blood, it actually came to mean what they called white martyrdom, which means the impulses of our flesh that need to be crucified, greed that needs to be crucified, anger that needs to be crucified, that he's worth us dying to ourselves. Hallowed be the name. Thy kingdom come. Let your influence come. This is opening the door. One of the ways we open the door is intentionally praying. We hear his voice and we respond with prayer. We hear his voice and we respond with gathering like this moment. We hear his voice and we gather to the table. These spiritual things that we do are the gatherings of the saints in response to the pounding Christ so that we can say, let thy kingdom come so that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, somehow he says, the kingdom of God is near. And he says, repent. It's just a simple word. It isn't a pejorative kind of word that's supposed to be beating us. Repentance isn't just supposed to beat you. Repentance is the notion of change how you think about this. Change how you think about this. The time is now, not later. Not when you get everything straightened out. Not when everything's perfect in your life. But right now, the kingdom of God is within your grasp. The influence of God is at hand. You can grab this. All you need to do is open your life. The kingdom of God's right here. Change your mind about it. Believe the good news. What's the good news? He's here. What's the good news? The kingdom's within your grasp. It's graspable for you. You can have hope. I think the real key to this is recognizing that on some level we have to be more intentional with opening the door. And what that translates into is religious activity. Now I know I'm evangelical, charismatic background, which we hate religion. I just, I want a relationship. I hate dead religion. Right? Which means we don't want to be responsible to do anything. We just want to feel our way and just feel the Lord. Pulling us, you know, instead of understanding, sometimes you, there's a bad kind of religion. You know what bad religion is? It's thinking that God is impressed with what you do. So you pray to think God's impressed with it. God's not impressed by what you do. He's not. He he understands that you are, but dust is how the King James puts it. (laughs) You're but dust. (laughs) Boy. That reduces it right down. (laughs) He gets that you don't get it. He gets that we don't get it. He gets that you're a moron. He understands that in of ourselves, I mean, he loves us, but he gets we, as far as religious activity is concerned, nothing impresses God. God's not looking for us to perform for him. God's looking for us to present ourselves to a God who performs in us. But we've got to engage. We've got to jump in. It's like a trellis in a garden. If you have ivy or something or vines, you, you, you put a trellis up. And what is a trellis? Dead wood. No life in it whatsoever. But you put that puppy up and those ivies crawl up in it and they live. You don't have any trellis and those ivies are stilted. They're on the ground. They don't grow very well. But you give it something to grow on and it grows like crazy. You need some dead religion in your life. What is dead religion? Stuff like a decision. I'm going to pray in the morning for five minutes. There's nothing life in that. I mean, you could do it and not experience anything. But you could do it and jump in with your heart. It's a trellis. I'm going to be at church this summer. 
I don't care what I feel like. I'm going to church. I'm going to open the Bible and read it even when it's B-O-R-I-N-G. I'm just going to do it. I double dog dare you to get some religion. Religion simply means binding yourself. Bind yourself to some spiritual activity. Bind yourself to skipping a meal on Mondays. And just skip a meal just because you're saying, God, I love you more than McDonald's. And you will suffer and it will suck. But if you do with your heart, you're going to find out that somewhere in the suck, God shows up. And he enters your life and you'll be surprised. (laughs) You know, it's like marriage. You know, if if you... (laughs) You know... You need to be religious in your marriage. You know, you gotta, you got to come home every night. <laughs> you know, you got to do... <laughs> you got to help clean. You know, you got to have date nights. I mean, you got to do stuff consistently, religiously, if you're going to build a marriage. It is surprising to me how many times I hear stories of couples that are absolutely, they're almost like they're dead, have nothing going on. They're de- that, you know, God raises dead things. Did you know God raises dead things? He does. And, and I've, I've had couples, I'm not kidding, just recently in the last year, there was this couple that I'm telling you they never even had a marriage. They were just together for over 10 years and never had a marriage they live like brother and sister. And I'm talking to them and I said, I, I said, you need to talk to Brent. And, you know, Brent and Janice, thank God for Brent and Janice. Thank God we have an expression in our context of people that actually counsel. I can't counsel people. I just preach at people. When they tell me their problems, I just say, well, you're an idiot. I don't know what to tell you. You, you don't, you're never encouraged when you come to me. So I said, I know someone. <laughs> Thank God on my speed dial. So, so I'll, you know, I'll t- and I, it is amazing to me. These guys have told me repeatedly that they're surprised on how just simple little rules, little religious trellises that in and of themselves are dead. That if they can just get couples to do it, a date night, when they get into a fight, do these following rules. This is how you talk it out. When this happens, this is how you get to a win-win to discuss it. And those simple rules, how they've seen couple after couple work through their struggles and fall madly in love with each other. This couple I'm referring to, they're like newlyweds. I mean, they've been married for 10, 12 years and they're madly in love with each other. And when they do that, I just look, I think, it's a miracle. (laughs) And really what it was is they just provided some dead wood for something to grow. See, some of you, some of us, the reason we don't see more of God's surprises in our lives is because we're so unreligious. We're evangelicals. We just want to feel the Lord in our lives and feel it all to be authentic and from the heart. Well, most of the time your heart's not engaged. You gotta, you know, clear. You know, when you study religions outside of, of Christianity, you realize that, that, that most of religion, and I think this is where it gets a bad rap with Christians, most of it just has to do with doing things instead of being in the heart. 
It has to do with, you know, doing a feast day or sacrificing an animal. In the ancient world, you sacrificed a person or bringing food to the gods to appease the gods. Worship in these contexts are not about what you think inside. It's not about what you believe. It's that they're just doing things externally. Most religions are like that. It's just about doing external things. Your mind doesn't really need to be engaged. And Christianity, to be sure, has a lot of different things we're supposed to do. Things we're asked to do. That, that are, you know, like for instance, we're at, Jesus told us, he said, do this when it comes to the table. He said, do this ritual. Do it over and over in remembrance of me. But notice it isn't this that we do it. We're supposed to remember something. So everything that we do is always rooted in belief. And it's rooted in thinking. Other religions, you know, they're more just doing and there's not really a concern about what you believe inside. Just do what you're supposed to do. It's a bit like, like getting your car tagged renewed in Oklahoma. I don't know if you've seen that ritual. If you're a... If you're a, a uh, um, Resident. <laughs> Resident of Oklahoma. There's this ritual that the state does. It's a religious ritual. And basically they send you this little card in the mail and they tell you how much money you have to pay. And then you go down to what they call a tag agency. If you've never been to a tag agency, it's quite an experience. You walk in, it's kind of another zone. You're not sure it's not another dimension, right? Almost like a leper colony. I mean, you're not quite sure what's going on in there. But you go in there and you get in this line. You wait and you go through the line. You get up to the front. You pay your money and they give you this little number tag thingy, uh, which is your prize. And then you take your little prize and take it outside and you put it on your little metal tag thing on your car and stick it on there and you know it's it's that way till next year when the ritual begins again you just basically are supposed to fulfill your to-dos nobody expects you from the state of Oklahoma to ponder what's going on (laughs) I mean I don't drive to the tag agency with my little paper and my proof of insurance thinking what does this really mean for my life and, 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 and while I'm waiting in line, I don't ponder with deep intellection. I'm not thinking, why a tag agency? I mean, what are the implications of that? What should I be learning in this line? I don't think that at all. Nor do I gaze at my new metal number thingy and, and, and cogitate if the number has any deeper meaning or, or, or somehow this might indicate a new day for me or my car. No, no, I just do it perfunctorily. I, I just, I do it because I want to avoid fines and I don't want to lose my license. I do because of my duty of being an Oklahoma citizen. See, this is what classic religion's all about. You do these ceremonies, you do these sacrifices because you don't want to pay a fine with the gods. You don't want to tick off anybody. You want to be part of the deal. That is what it is. But Christianity is more. It isn't just that we do things. We are urged to pray prayers. We are urged to come to the Eucharist. We are urged to be baptized. We are urged to read scripture. But it's the, we're, they're not ends in themselves. 
They're really these kind of things that we jump into where we, we, we have this sense of actually encountering the presence of another. That somehow these little trellises that we're jumping into, that God somehow interacts with us in those ways. That he calls us to it because he wants us to bring our emotion and our heart and that he will meet us there. We encounter the presence of another. Some faiths do carry the notion that God or the gods are present in a religious encounter, but, but not like a Christian sense. I mean, Islam, for instance, believes that, that in their expression of faith that God comes. But God always remains separate from the human during any of those interactions, like water and oil, because God and man in Islam never commingle. There's no sense of incarnation. But uh, the religions that claim God's presence see his presence as separate from them. And humans are just simply aware of God. Or maybe when it comes to the sense of the sibyls or, or those ancient kind of people that went into trances and uttered words, they, they had this sense that they were like vessels of God, channels of God in some way. But once they came out of being a channel, they were still themselves. God never intermingled with their humanness. He was always separate from their humanness. It's Christianity that is the only religion that makes this bold claim that there's a divine and human intermingling that somehow human life and the human intellect and the human emotions are transformed when we participate in God's presence that we literally participate in his nature that, that this is a completely radical faith because remember for most faiths intellection isn't even important it's not what you think or your heart it's just doing the obligation but in Christianity, we are, we literally, as we come to Eucharist, literally as we come to church, literally as we open the scripture, these are, these are maybe wooden in and of themselves, but as we do, there's this belief that we're coming to the very life of God, and somehow his presence begins to innervate our human experience. And somehow, it, it's in a way that the, the Eastern Orthodox claim that we are deified, that there's a deification, First blush, it sounds like you're being turned into God, but that's not what it means. Nobody's, nobody expects that you're actually becoming God. But somehow, you as a human become something more than what you were. That, that somehow God enters into our lives. It's, it's beautiful. It's like Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is what's so bizarre about this. I mean, anytime you talk about power, most power doesn't work like this. If we had somebody walk in here that was very, very powerful, like, like if, if, like if, if, um, if uh, Billy Graham walked in here, just walked in the room as I was talking, you know what most of you would do? You'd stop listening to me because somebody more powerful has walked in. If, if our president or somebody that was a great statesman or something walked in, you'd stop. Power displaces what's present. Power pushes out of the way what's here. That's the way power works. In the pagan world, if power shows up, it's like Zeus sending lightning bolts and blasting stuff away. Power overruns where it lands, where it shows up. But only in Christianity does power not overrun us or overtake us. In fact, power, as it appears in Christianity, makes us better. Power shows up and we're bigger. Power shows up and we're more effective. 
<laughs> so hence, if I can encounter the power of God, all of a sudden I can do stuff that I was not able to do previously because power lifts us up. Peter says his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. If you're not living a godly life, it isn't because God wants you to try harder. He knows your trying doesn't work. He knows that par for the course is you being a toad, right? What he's looking for is you to realize that he has given us. His power is what makes us godly through our knowledge of him. And he's called us to his own glory and goodness so that through these, his very great and precious promises, that through them we can participate in the divine nature. We we open the door through commitments of prayer. We open the door by saying, I'm going to church. We open the door by saying, I'm going to approach the scriptures on some regular basis. I'm Purposely, It may seem dead and religious when I decide it, but I'm not trusting in it. I'm going after what God's going to do as I do that. And as you do that, you participate in the divine nature and you escape the corruption that's in the world caused by evil desire. (laughs) See, this is how it's different. You know, uh, I have a bag of jelly up here. And uh, the bag of jelly, this is more like pagan ideas. The bag carries the jelly, but it's never altered by the jelly. The bag stays the bag, the jelly stays the jelly, right? It's the way it is. But Christianity isn't like this. We don't just come to God, you know, and he just jellies our bag. Christianity is more like one of these precious little morsels. This, my friend, is a jelly sandwich. And those of you, you know, you may be into PB&J, which is good, but jelly sandwiches are better because they have absolutely no nutritional value whatsoever. And we're talking type 2 diabetes right here. Right? But you get a jelly sandwich. And here's, here's for the point. Here's what the story is about a jelly sandwich. You put together a jelly sandwich and what you discover is part of it is bread, part of it is jelly. But there's this whole dimension that isn't bread and it isn't jelly. It's jelly bread. (laughs) The jelly incarnates. And you can't separate the jelly from the bread. It's just jelly bread. See, see, what happens is part is just you when you pray. And, And God's just God when you encounter him. But somehow as you... You being you and God being God encounter, all of a sudden there's like this, this God in you. It's not just God in you, it's God in you. It's not just jelly and bread, it's jelly bread. You participate in the jelly. This is Christianity. when you get all jammed with God (laughs) see this this is what Luther was all bent out of shape with with the church of his time because by the 12th century the church had lost a lot of its heart and it became very um, organized and it became very institutionalized and so it was about them telling people what to do they became the state of Oklahoma sending people Tag renewals. And people just went to the church renewing their tags. They weren't thinking about what they were doing. 
There was no sense of personal encounter. And Luther said, there's something wrong with this. This isn't about, this isn't supposed to be a tag agency. There's, there's something, be, something supposed to be going on in the lives of every individual. And so he said, look, we need to deal with the heart. And so the call to us, if we pray, is to throw our heart in it. There's this ministry of the individual. That coming to church shouldn't be about us watching what happens in the pulpit, but we're to be engaging in worship and participating in the sacraments and letting this form us in our lives. Now, sadly, some of us, again, as evangelicals and charismatics, we've, I've got jelly on my hands. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Actually, it's getting close to noon. <laughs> Sadly, we, we make Christianity about just belief. And some of us as evangelicals, we've just kind of said, well, you know, just, you just need to have an encounter with Jesus. You just need to go forward and pray the prayer. And then once you pray the prayer, you know, October 7th in 1987, you prayed the prayer and all is well. That's what we're trying to get everybody to do is pray the prayer. Pray the magic prayer, and then they make the connection. You know, they get their little number for the, from the tag agency, and, and we're all set. See, what if that's not true? What if Christianity isn't about an event you had? What if Christianity is about a life you embrace? Now, I hate to tell you this, and I'm not trying to get into debates on eternal security or anything like that, but, but let Jesus confuse you just for a moment. He said, not everyone who comes unto me saying, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, I would raise my hand and say, well, excuse me. They told me if I would pray, Lord, Lord, that that's how I got saved. I prayed the Lord, Lord, prayer. I'm okay. I know I just watched reruns of MASH, but I'm okay. <laughs> no, not everyone who comes to me saying, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those that do the will of my Father. You say, well, what does that mean? I don't know, but I would be a little freaked out if I were you. See, see, no one ever imagined. You remember the old hymn that says, our hearts are prone to wander? It's true. Our hearts are prone to wander. And the old dudes, the old dead people, the saints that we read, they understood spirituality was tough. They understood that we live in a kind of fire swamp. That things can blow up right under our feet and us not even see it. That we have bodily impulses and that there are deceiving devils and that there are worldly distractions. And they believe that in a fallen world you have to, you have to fight to find things that pull us up. Because, in fact, the Orthodox said that when Adam and Eve left the garden, and, and in this idea, you know, whether it's literal, whether it's story, whether it's poetic, whatever it is, it was this notion that as they, as they left the garden and God threw these garments of skin over them, the Orthodox uh, faith says that somehow men and women were pulled to the earth, that, that those garments pulled them toward the earth, that our orientation is to wander. And that somehow we've got to do stuff to take the garments off, to throw the flesh off. That stuff like prayer, coming to church, reading your Bible, having times of silence, getting out your app, Bible app when you're in between, you know, breaks during the day and getting a verse in your soul. Or if your only quiet time is the toilet, well, there's four toddlers 
scratching at the door, screaming. You just say, silence! And get a verse into your soul. You're going to have to fight to open the door so that hope and grace spills into your life. Come down to Times Square. Or if you don't, You'll live far below God's imagination for you. And you won't see much of God's power in your life at all. So here's the bottom line. My point is develop some habits that bring you into his presence. Because when you do, life just gets sweeter.